The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles back to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at one word and a gap. Verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. As we're gearing up to study the book of Romans, I feel a little bit like an airline pilot, at least the airline pilots that I've seen do this, or an astronaut, or at least the astronauts who I've seen do this on television, where right before the flight, they just seem to be flipping a bunch of switches and getting things set and getting everything ready for, for, for launch or for takeoff. And it's going to take us a few weeks to do that, to get up to speed, because the book of Romans is such a dynamic and epic um, invitation into gospel truth. And to just drop in and just take five or six or ten or even verses or a chapter at a time would be utterly unfair to the majesty of this book. So this morning, we need to look at the word Paul, and then there's a little comma. What comes after that comma is a pretty big footnote, because anyone who would have heard Paul and then any explanation about the gospel, which was especially about Christ Jesus, which was especially as one called as an apostle, a slave of Jesus for the gospel of God, would have caused pause. How could Paul be this guy saying this stuff? Credibility is never overrated. Credibility is defined as, quote, the equality, excuse me, the quality of being believable or Worthy of trust. Think about that. The quality of being believable or being worthy of trust. In the opening words of Romans, Paul uses his introduction of himself to establish his own credibility, to give his own credentials. I'm entitled today's sermon, Divine Credibility from the Foremost Sinner. It was no small, no simple task when you understand who Paul was to supply gospel authenticity, to supply credibility to be listening to the Apostle Paul talk about Jesus Christ. There was a time when many would have said Paul, or Saul at the time, would have been the most unlikely source for gospel truth. He would have been the last person to be in this position writing these things. The last person to preach about Jesus in an affirming way. Now, as I said, there's a huge gap between that first word, Paul, and the rest of the verse. And before we can move on to those three descriptive pr phrases, slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, we have to look at that little intended footnote, that little gap. What, where, how did Paul get those credentials? How in the world could this man say these things? The incredulity, the unbelievable fact of Paul being a gospel spokesperson was, was not only a footnote for Paul's readers, it was an ever-present recognition by the, the apostle himself. I want you to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 for a moment. 
Paul never got over the fact that he was doing what he was doing. He never got over the wonder and amazement that he was a preacher for Jesus. And in writing to Timothy, who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus that Paul had founded, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 12, he says this, 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. He's, he's looking back over the fact of the wonder of him being an apostle. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in an unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith of, and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom the Apostle Paul says, I am the foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me as the foremost, what is that, the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, looking back at the fact that he was saved, breaks forth in one of the greatest doxologies in the New Testament. He just never got over the wonder that God saved him. He actually says in verse 16 that as the foremost sinner being saved, that's how Paul viewed himself. It was an example for anyone to believe in his name. And in other words, anyone is within the realm of grace. No one is beyond the reach of grace. There is no one you've prayed for. There is no one bad enough who is unsavable by God's grace. Paul calls himself the foremost sinner. And I would certainly compete with him for that own self designation, that, own, that, that designation that he gave himself. Let's take a little closer look at Paul. This morning we're just going to get a ramp up speed, get up to get a ramp, uh, go on an on ramp and get up to speed with Paul. Who is he? Where did he come from? How did he say these things about this? Who was this foremost of all sinners? Well, just a little background. The Apostle Paul is one of the most dominant personalities in the Bible. In the New Testament, he's the most important person except for Jesus himself. He's one of the most impressive people in all of Scripture. He's discussed, quoted, studied, debated, and admired by countless many. Robert Picker really says, Except for the Lord himself, no other single figure has done so much for the Christian faith as Paul. Paul's ministry takes up over half the book of Acts, and his 13 epistles dominate the New Testament. Just think of that. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He was born as a Roman citizen, a Jew by race and by religion. His name was Saul. His Jewish name was Saul. His Roman name was Paul. Perhaps the memory of the first king. I'm going to use Saul and Paul synonymously this morning. We're going to be bouncing back and forth, and it's hard to kind of keep grip on where you are in Paul's progression. He was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a Messianic tribe. His Jewish heritage was more important to him than even his Roman citizenship, Philippians 3 says. Unlike many Jews who had been scattered throughout the world, he and his family had not become assimilated into the Gentile way of life. They had stayed true as real Jews. 
That's why he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not just a Hebrew in race, but he was a Hebrew in worship and in religion. He studied under one of the most influential and important scholars in history. His name was Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was very interesting in the progression of the book of Acts because he was the one who encouraged patience about Christianity. Paul demanded action, on the other hand. And when Paul proved to be an outstanding student, when Saul did, he had pronounced a pronounced enthusiasm for the law of God and the Jewish tradition. Jesus then and this new Christian sect of Judaism presented a threat that Paul held so dear that he was willing to actually persecute and pursue and chase and kill people for believing in Christ. Paul's gifts and versatility are remarkable. He was an apostle, a preacher, a pastor, a debater, a theologian, a pastor uh, to multiple churches, an overseer, a missionary, and a spiritual father and a brother. The book of Acts actually chronicles the beginning of the church, and after an amazing start, as we know, where 3,000 people were saved in Acts chapter 2, after one sermon, what, what, a, what, a, what an experience that must have been for Peter. The atmosphere looks really good for a few days, and then it turns hostile, looking like it did in the last week of Jesus' life. Where people were now not only angry at Jesus, but they were aggressively pursuing his followers. By the time you get to chapter 8, being a follower of Jesus Christ carried with it the possibility of a death sentence. We know that because Stephen himself was stoned to death because he spoke of Jesus as Lord and Savior. As Stephen was thrown to the ground, the enraged men took off their togas, took off their cloaks, and they laid them at the charge and assistance at the feet of a man named Saul from Tarsus. It's said that the blood of the first Christian martyr must have splattered on Saul's toga. Then we come to Acts chapter 9. I need you to turn over there. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Acts chapter 9. Stephen has been stoned to death. As Acts 9 opens, Saul is still persecuting the church. But something happens in this chapter that changed the course of Christian history. And the events narrated would actually prove to change the whole world. F.F. Bruce says, No single event, apart from the Christ event itself, has proved so determinant for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. George Littleton said, The conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient enough to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. In other words, if Saul ends up being converted to Christianity... There has to be something supernatural about that, and we'll find out why when we get into Acts chapter 9. We first meet the apostle uh, Paul when he was laying, uh, those coats were being laid at his feet. They laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He would one day tell the Corinthians, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 says. He never forgot that he was a persecutor. He never forgot that he was there when Stephen was 
faithfully laying down his life for the Lord. I think he was probably haunted by Stephen's faith and courage his entire life. Why persecute the church? He told the Galatians in Galatians 1 verse 13 and 14, You've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That's a, quite a testimony. I didn't want to just persecute it. I wanted to snuff it out. And it was advancing, I was advancing in my Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely jealous for my ancestral traditions. He quickly demonstrated advanced spiritual acumen. He was maturing very quickly in the Jewish hierarchy. His leadership of the persecution was officially sanctioned by the Jewish religious officials in Jerusalem in Acts 9, where he said that they basically gave him letters and said, these are extradition papers to go and find Jews who converted to Christianity and bring them back to trial in Jerusalem, ultimately to be killed like Stephen. Paul took part enthusiastically in the hostile repression and aggression against the church at Jerusalem. And we'll see in Acts 9.1, he was actually breathing threats. His very breath was full of murderous thoughts against the disciples. He was arresting and imprisoning men and women to try to make them renounce their faith in Christ as they were brought before the synagogue courts. He was even pursuing refugees beyond the frontiers of Judea in an attempt to extradite them back to Jerusalem for trial. Now here's something that not a lot of people think about, but Saul, it's very interesting we know little about this. This is one of the curious questions I have when I, when I if I, I hope I have an opportunity to talk to Paul in heaven. Where was he during the crucifixion week? Most agree he is probably a member of the Sanhedrin, which was part of that body that accused Jesus. Was he on a business trip? Was he around? If he was, it seems like he would have said something about that. Perhaps he had heard Jesus teach. Some think he actually participated in the crucifixion trial. We have no record of that. But many of the new believers in prison were put there because of Paul. Acts 26, 10 and 11 says, He would cast his vote regularly against the Christians. As I said, he told the Galatians he was motivated by extreme zeal for his Jewish faith. However, Saul's prostrating counter, falling on the ground before the living glorified Jesus on the Damascus Road instantly terminated his career as a persecutor. Now, there, there are several places that Paul talks about this. He, uh, he, he does so before King Agrippa. Uh, he does uh, in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. He talks about his testimony, this encounter he had in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to weave some of those details in our walking through here, his testimony here in Acts 9. But let's look at this together. Let's explore this chapter and we'll make some concluding comments at the end of it. But let's hear how Saul became Paul and what would give him the credibility and credentials, divine sanction to write Romans, the greatest of all gospel explanations, as what he called himself, the foremost sinner. Well, if you're the foremost sinner, Paul, Saul, why would I listen to you tell me about the gospel? Let's find out. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, that was a, a Greek way of saying that's all he could talk about went to the high priest 
He had a relationship with the high priest. He could just go have an appointment with him. That's how high up he was in the Jewish hierarchy. And ask for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. That was about 150 miles away, about a week's journey. So that if he found any belonging to the way. Remember John 14, 6? Jesus said, I am the way. Both, this is critical, both men and women, that he might bring them tied up in a straitjacket, bound to Jerusalem. Here is Saul. He's a terrorist to Christians. So intense he was in his terroristic plots against Christians that he drew his very breath from the idea of slaughtering them and harboring imprisonment against them. Charles Swindoll, I love what he says. He describes Paul like this. Saul's blood was boiling. He was on a murderous rampage toward Damascus. He charged north out of Jerusalem with the fury of Alexander the Great sweeping across Persia and the determined resolve of William Sherman in a scorching march across Georgia. Saul was borderline out of control. His fury had intensified almost to the point of no return. Such bloodthirsty determination and blind hatred for the followers of Christ drove him hard toward his distant destination, Damascus. If you were a follower of Jesus living anywhere near Jerusalem, you would not want to hear Saul's knock at your door. End quote. The high priest agreed. He issues these letters instructing the synagogues of Damascus in Syria to assist with this extradition process of men and women associated with the way. Christianity was now officially under religious attack. And the Roman government typically upheld such edicts from the Jews. And with these opening words in Acts 9, Christians have now become outlaws. The Christians in Damascus knew what was coming. They knew of Saul. They knew of his hatred. They knew of his brutality. They knew of his sitting there with Stephen. They knew of his murderous plots against them, and they were looking for a way out of their encounter with Saul. Who, who would want to meet Saul in that condition? Verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. That would be a great title for a blog. As he was approaching Damascus, probably with an eye shot of the walls, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice. And it was saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, um, who, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Several features jump out in these simple three verses. Suddenly, no warning, no preparation, no warm-up. Perhaps the most understated observation in the Scripture is that Saul didn't see this coming. Don't miss here that Saul's encounter with the Lord was divinely initiated. Acts 26.13 says that the light was overwhelming. It was brighter than the sun. Acts 26 tells us it was midday. It was still a blinding light in the middle of day at high noon. The, the light was still brighter than the sun. Does that tell you something about the glory of Christ? Saul is overwhelmed. He falls to the ground in obvious terror. And then he hears the words that he would ponder the rest of his life. Why are you 
persecuting me. It's very interesting that, that Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Wouldn't that make sense? You know who teaches us most in the New Testament about the New Test, about the believer's solidarity relationship with Jesus Christ? Paul. Where do you think he got that? To persecute believers was to persecute Christ. He told the Colossians to fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What does that mean? Is Jesus, does he need to suffer more? No. He's saying since they can't get to Jesus, they will get to you. Absorb it for him since he took the cross for you. Paul's problem with Christianity was not that it was non-Jewish. Paul's problem with Christianity was Jesus himself. That Jesus could be the promised Messiah was out of question. He was tried and executed as a criminal. Do, do you understand why he would say in 1 Corinthians, this is foolishness. Who has a crucified Messiah? Who has a Messiah who is executed on a cross as their leader? Also, he knew Deuteronomy 21 and 23. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. The first step in anyone's salvation is, and it's no exception with Saul here, is the sovereign initiation of God. He encounters the risen, risen, resurrected Lord Jesus. Some years later, by the way, Paul was standing before King Agrippa. We're going to read that next week, by the way, in our scripture reading. Reviewing what had happened on his way to Damascus. And he lets us in on something that, that Jesus told him that Luke leaves out in this encounter in Acts 9. In Acts 26, 14, Paul recounting this time, says that Jesus revealed to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Strange word. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Paul had been willingly and willfully suppressing the truth of Christ against his own conscience. Even though he'd been a part of this persecution, even though he'd been a part of Stephen's death, there was something inside him that was a ticking time bomb on his conscience. Jesus says, you're kicking against the goats. You're not really into this because there's something about the gospel that's provocative to even your conscience. At this point, now he's brought to his knees in humbling, humiliating realization that all these Christians were right after all about Jesus. And we see over and over he's put on trial for believing one main thing. What was it? That Jesus Christ was killed and is now what? Alive. That was the main issue they had consternation with him about. Saul was very uneasy with his disbelief. Think about that. Saul was uneasy in his disbelief. And I just have to ask, if you are an unbeliever, if you're a believer who believes the facts about Christmas and Easter, but you've never given your life to Christ, I want to pray that you become uneasy in that position too. Oh, Saul had lots of opportunities for excuses. He was taught this, he was with these people. He was uneasy in his disbelief and in his disobedience. He was kicking against the goads. Suddenly, Saul stops believing that Jesus was dead, doesn't he? He must have shaken in this thought for days. You understand now why the resurrection is so vitally, critically important to Paul's theology. Now, what's, what's awkward about this is Hollywood special effects makes, 
makes the absorption of this text almost unrealistic. Oh, we can picture how Hollywood might do it. Remember, they, they had no category for fantastical special effects. This was mystifying. This dropped him to the ground. By the way, notice that the one who knew his name also knew what he had been doing. That was a frightening thought. Not only did Jesus know his name, but he told him, I know what you've been doing to me. Isaiah and Daniel were met by the Lord. They were terrified by his consuming presence. They immediately knew of their sinfulness. But Saul's encounter goes much deeper than even that. He, the divine speaker addresses him twice by name and accuses him of personal offenses. It's one thing to have God show up. It's another thing to have God show up and say, you've been persecuting me. That's not a good position to be in. He must have been sick with confusion. I mean, think about this. His zeal for the honor of God's name that have led him on, on these boundless and horrific marches against Christianity and his holy war for the Lord had actually been his holy war against the Lord. And that voice, it must have rocked his world when he says, who are you? He says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you've been persecuting. Verse 6. I love this. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. Acts 26, 17 and 18 tell us that the Lord also told him he was going to be his slave, which will come together in the book of Romans in the opening verses, and a witness, an apostle, to bring the nations from darkness to light and the power from Satan to God. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. This is interesting. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Paul would later comment that the men saw the light, heard the voice, but didn't understand it. It was like thunder to them. But make no mistake, their perception of the light and thunderous uh, sounds showed that Paul's vision, Saul's vision, was no conjuring of his imagination. This was real. It was objectifiable proof. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were open, he couldn't see anything. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight. And he neither ate nor drank. Have you ever been in a position where fasting wasn't an option? There was just, you couldn't eat or drink with Saul. John Pollock describes what that time in Damascus must have been like. These are interesting words. Pollock says, at that moment in Damascus, time became meaningless. Meaningless. Paul heard the evening trumpet and the next morning's cock crow. The rumble of carts on the paving, the shopkeepers shouting their wares, the distant murmur of bargainers and the occasional bray of a donkey. Then the stillness of midday. And Paul lay on his bed, wide awake, except for an hour or two of sleep, or knelt long at his bedside in prayer and laid down again. He did not want any human company, only to be alone with the Lord Jesus, as he now called him. He soon forgot his hunger or thirst. His entire personality was in mutation of that. He was being turned inside out as he let the light of Jesus into the recesses of his soul. End quote. 
I think the more he thought in the darkness of his blindness, the more he was broken by the enormity of what he'd been doing. How wrong he had been about Jesus. I want to go on. Pollock says this. He had imagined that he served God. He had supposed himself climbing into God's favor. He had set up his standards of goodness and compared himself with others and see that he was good. But now, in contrast with Jesus, whose spirit had invaded him, he knew his purity was counterfeit of the in, of, in, in comparison to the inexpressibly pure, that the good deeds of a parody were a parody of God's goodness. He had been mentally and spiritually hostile to God, and though honoring him by mouth, he had been busy in evil. Though punctilious in his religious rites, he had been altogether estranged, but for nothing to crawl away as far as he could from the blinding light that was God. Back to verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. No, this is not the same Ananias in chapter 5. He's dead. Okay? And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. This is, this is comical, okay? Here I am, Lord. He said, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for a man named, uh, from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias, this is really funny to me, Ananias answered, verse 13, um, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he did to your name, to your saints in Jerusalem, and that there, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. It's interesting that Paul's extradition papers had already gotten word. The fact that he had that had already reached 150 miles north to Damascus. They knew he was coming on a vengeance tour. Now, can't you understand a little bit of Ananias's apprehension? Notice Paul's reputation. Incredible. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Easy, tiger. He says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument, a clay pot, clay pot of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him much, how much he has to suffer for my name's sake. Wow. Now, just for a second, would you just look at Ananias? Obedient, trusting, risk-taking, a Gentile. Unbelievable. So, verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother? Don't miss the significance of that. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, Saul had to think, how in the world does he know this? Has sent me, there's how he knew it, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew what had happened. This must have been confirming to Saul. Verse 18. And immediately there fell something from his eyes like, um, like, like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. So many people have spent a lot of ink trying to figure out what were these scales. We don't know. That's why it says something like scales. God had put divine blinding contact lenses on Saul and said, lay down and think about it for a while. 
I love this too. Immediately, he was what? He was baptized. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Can you imagine the prayer meeting? Let's pray. Everyone goes to prayer. Saul starts to pray, and they've got their eyes open. They're looking at this guy. Does he have a knife? Does he have a dagger? And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Can you imagine the reputation? He's going up to Damascus to arrest all these people, extradition papers in his hands. He goes to the synagogue and he says, No, you don't understand. He is the Son of God. He is who he said he was. Verse 21, and this is an understatement. All those who are hearing him continued to be amazed. Really? And they were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength, I love this, and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. How would he be such an expert that Jesus was the Christ? Because he was the expert in the Old Testament. And that led him after his faith to connect the dots between the coming Messiah and the Messiah who came. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. When many days had elapsed, verse 23, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Now, <laughs> he was their hero, and now he was their villain. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were attempting, they were watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. How serious was this? How, I mean, think about this. Don't overlook the power of that statement. They didn't want to just talk to him. They, they wanted to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. This was one of many escapes Paul would have like this. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Really, you think? He comes back to Jerusalem. He went out on this, this journey to kill and persecute and arrest Christians. He comes back and says, I am one. And he finds the disciples and he says, hey, I'm one of you. And they said, hey, hey you know what? I, there may be another synagogue you can go to. There, there are other churches for you. Verse 27, oh, I love these first two words, but Barnabas. No one trusted him, but Barnabas, another great man, took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to, to him. Remember, they knew he had rose from the dead. They, they, they were wanting, Jesus went in the clouds and were wondering, okay, what, what, what's next? And now they hear Paul met him on the way up in Syria to Damascus, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Again, the reputation, the rumor mill was so fast, even 150 miles apart. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Again, second group of people who already want to kill this man. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria 
enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Can you, I mean, can you say wow? Now, now, there's a couple of things I want us to look at in Saul's conversion in his becoming Paul. On the one hand, his, his conversion is very unique. It's incredibly unique. Now, no one's seen Jesus, the living, risen Savior, brighter than the sun and fallen on their face. By the way, if you ever see or hear Jesus, you'll know it's Jesus because you'll fall on your face as a dead man, as a dead woman. There is no casual conversation with him. Even John the Apostle, his best friend, who interacted with him so comfortably uh, during his incarnation, when he sees him in the book of Revelation, falls down as if he's dead. On the other hand, Paul's conversion is no different than any of ours. It involved initiation by God. It involved conviction of sin. It involved submission to Christ, understanding Him by faith. And it involved devotion to ministry. Those are common links that connect with all of us. Jesus is the most drastic fork on the most important road in anyone's Again, John, John, the Southern Baptist uh, commentator John Polhill says so succinctly, the persecutor of the Christians was transformed into the proclaimer of Christ. What do we learn from Saul's conversion? A few things that just jump off the page to me. First of all, no one is beyond God's grace. I know some of you have friends and relatives and children, cousins and relations, co-workers. And it's tempting to think God saves people but not that person. God saves bad people but not that bad a person. There was no one worse than Saul. Paul even says, I was the worst of all sinners. In, in other words, he says his religious duplicity. His religious hypocrisy was worse than, than any adulterer or any fornicator. This callous, self-righteous, bigoted murderer was transformed by the risen Savior and this ought to remind us to never, ever, ever, ever write anyone off as being beyond the love of God in Christ. God can reach anyone. Paul's authority came from Christ. His power came from the Holy Spirit. His righteousness was alien. And Paul's overarching point in the book of Romans is that his and every believer's spiritual resume before God to be accepted by God has nothing about us on it and all Christ's righteousness. Now go back to Acts chapter, excuse me, to Romans chapter 1. We'll pick this up again next week, but look at look at what he says here and it should have a lot make a lot more sense. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, Acts 27 says that Jesus said, you will be my slave. Called as an apostle. In other words, I'm a called, sent one. He called me to be sent into the world, Gentile and Jew, to preach the gospel. And I love, I love, I love this last phrase. Sanctified, set apart, put aside, commissioned, for the good news, for the gospel of God. 
Yes, that was Paul's resume. Yes, that's Paul's credibility. But you know what? There are dimensions of those three descriptions that affect all of us. A slave of Christ, that's you and me. It should be our submission to Christ that distinguishes us. Called as an apostle, no, we're not going to be a capital A apostle, but we should be sent ones by God to give the gospel to those who will hear and set apart for a purpose, set apart because of the good news of God. God saves people who look like they need to be saved by his criteria. When we look at Saul's conversion, when we look at the Apostle Paul being commissioned, it should humble us. It should waylay us. It should put us on the ground in humility that God saves sinners. Paul never got over the fact, I'm the foremost sinner. He was not an excuse maker. He was not a blame shifter. He was not someone who pointed to excuses all around him. He was settled and convinced that God was so gracious to save him, the foremost sinner in his own estimation. What's, what's your estimation of yourself? You know, most of us create our estimation of ourselves based on our comparing of ourselves to others. It's naturally intuitive to do that, isn't it? If you're comparing yourself to others, you are going to end up just exactly where Saul was, a self-righteous, bigoted, oh, you may not be murderous, but you'll be a hater, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. We're just looking that everyone is just a little worse than us, but if you really look deeply into the gospel, you just take pause and say, well, oh, I, I may find someone I can compare myself to and feel better about myself, but not when I look at myself before Christ. He is the mirror. He is the source. He's, he's the place we look to find our own self-identity. And you know what? We're going to look in the book of Romans and it's not a good self-identity. It's bad. He is going to call us a lot of names. And none of them are any good. But that's good because it makes the glory of Christ and the grace and mercy of the gospel just say, wow. If you know Christ, you should be able to sing and say, hallelujah, what a Savior. You should be saying, I've been called by his name. What do I do with this gift? We're going to be able to sing that in just a moment. Aaron, I'm going to ask you and the band, if you would, to come back up so we can be dismissed by the most appropriate song. At the end of our service, when we finish, our prayer room to my right, the door will be open, and I think um, uh, Ben Hyman and uh, his wife will be over there. And We'd love to talk to you, pray with you, pray for you, um, talk to you about becoming a Christian, what it means to be a part of our church. If you have a burden or a question, we would love to serve you in that way. Father, dismiss us with thoughts of our utter unworthiness to be saved by your grace. Teach us to love the gospel because of that recognition and to be forever grateful for a calling to be your sons and daughters and to be your representatives. 
In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>